Sometimes when you go out these days, you feel a little bit like Daniel going to the lion's den, don't you? Said, well, I hope they don't bite while I'm out there. <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. I am glad to see your eyes. Glad to see you here. I know it's a, it's a good day. And I um, appreciate what Bill said. We don't know how long these things will be around and what, it, what it'll do, but I'm thankful to still be alive today. We ought to enjoy the day and take part in it as best we possibly can. Uh, appreciate those who are online sharing with us. Appreciate you being present. I want to share with you some thoughts today that I think may be just a little bit different. Again, a few weeks ago I said, you know, this is about as political as I get, and maybe there might be some construing of this. But, I, you know, sometimes when things are going on in our society and in our times that I think we, we do need to respond. We do need to say something, I think, so that people aren't just hearing one voice out there. I think we, we live in a country where we're blessed to be able to say the things we want to say as much as possible, and I think we still have a lot of that freedom available to us. And I don't want to get too far off in this because I believe there were some biblical things for us to think about. The question I want to put to you today is, what about you? Now, the more I thought about it, I thought that probably wasn't the best title, but it was already on there. It was on the PowerPoint. It was on my, my sheet in front of me, and I didn't want to have to print a new sheet or anything like that. You know, that'd be too much trouble. But uh, still, what about you? Because there's a question in there, and really it comes from Jesus. A little later in the chapter to what I was referring to before the Lord's Supper, in John chapter 21, picking up in verse 20, we continue in an interchange with Jesus that immediately follows those questions. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know, and you know all things. You know I love you. And then Jesus gives Simon Peter some instructions and basically says, here's how your life's going to go, man. Because Peter is wondering, you know, what's going on? What's going to happen with me? Verse 20. Read with me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John, it appears, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I hope you see the wisdom. Without me even telling you about it, I hope you see the wisdom in this. I think we're in a time where there's a lot of turmoil, turmoil in our society. We, we're struggling with a lot of things, aren't we? We're struggling with things of you know, maybe as simple as whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask and people arguing about those kind of things. And I kind of go, you know, what's this? We have racial tensions around us. We have gender tensions around us. We have constitutional tensions around us. We have, we have election tensions all around. There's so much argument and so forth going on right now in the world. We wonder, well, which side do I show up on and how do I answer the things that are there? And it comes back, I think, in simplicity. And I know this oversimplifies it. But what about you? 
that's the question. Because Jesus said, if I, will that, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So what if somebody gets the stage? So what if somebody gets more money? So what if somebody's doing this? You know, unless they're endangering your life, you know, we, I think, what is it? Where, where does this come from? And as we deal with some of the racial tensions that are so highlighted today, I wonder... Is this really as big as we're making it? And if it is, why can't we just resolve? Maybe I'm just a lower middle class, a lower middle class I think. Maybe that's where I fit in. Probably just low class. Thank you. White boy, I grew up in a segregated society. Until I was in high school, I was in a segregated school. I, I think because white and black and other people didn't live in the same neighborhoods more more than anything it wasn't it wasn't a a forced segregation except that people just didn't live that way like they do today in interracial neighborhoods but I don't know that I ever thought much about it I do remember in the 1970s when I was a young teenager, I think I was driving by then, I think I came home from work one evening and my parents had invited A.C. Chrisman and his wife to our house for dinner. A.C. Chrisman was the preacher at the uh, North, not the North Side, the uh, North Peoria Church of Christ in Tulsa. It was a large black congregation. And if you were ever fortunate enough to hear A.C. Crispin preach, he was an excellent preacher. Excellent. I mean, just excellent. But I came home from work that evening, and there he sat in our living room. To my knowledge, that was the first time I'd ever seen a black family sitting in our house. I can't think of another time. There were none who attended church with us. I didn't have any to go to school with except that once I got into high school, a portion of our high school, I think somewhere around a third of it was, was black and two-thirds white in my high school. I learned a lot in those high school years. But that was the first time in my life. Was there some sort of forced segregation? Was it a belittling? No. Wasn't it? It just was kind of where we were. Was it good? Not necessarily, but it was where we were. I don't apologize for it. I don't think there is some need to go back and say, man, because we just lived. We were living. We didn't know. We've come miles from there. We live generations away from that time, I believe. But let me tell you what I'm getting at. Somewhere there is a point. There is a point at which our genetics, our environment, our, our various associations, and our personal responsibility reach that tipping point where the balance has to be pulled out of place. And I look at it this way because on a very personal level, it was pressed on me and I think on most of my generation that we were responsible for our lives that we were responsible for good or bad in our lives. We didn't blame it on somebody else. We didn't look for somebody else. We were to take responsibility for our lives. Does that mean we weren't helped by our families, our friends, and others? That's not what I'm saying. But if we did something wrong or something was amiss in our lives, we took responsibility for it, and we were to do something about it. It wasn't somebody else's fault. It was ours to deal with. 
even if it was caused by an outside source. That was the kind of society in which I believe I was raised. At least that was the home in which I was raised. It's not that we were to discount the influence of others, it's just that we were expected to take this responsibility. But how many mothers... How many mothers have responded to their children who sought excuse in the behavior of other children? And that's common, isn't it? How many mothers have said, if everyone else was jumping off a cliff, would you jump off with them? Just because others are doing, pardon the grammar, that's not very good grammar. But does that make sense? Our mothers were trying to teach us a lesson, weren't they? They're trying to teach us the same lesson that Jesus was teaching. You are responsible for you. Friends, I believe at the heart of all human desires is the desire to be respected and valued. Especially valued. If we don't feel valued by others, we tend to act in ways to get attention such as protest, rebellion, misbehavior. Maybe you've heard of something called the Boston Tea Party. We'll give the history lesson later. You may remember that there was a revolution that took place after that, about that time. Didn't like the way things were, and so they had tea. No, you remember what happened there. If you don't, go and read the story. It's interesting. But that's not unusual. That's the way we act to things. You think about misbehaving children and crying babies. What do they want? They want to be noticed. What did they want with the Boston Tea Party? They wanted to get the attention of Britain. I believe when we want attention, we'll do whatever it takes to get that attention, sometimes for right and sometimes for wrong. Even the radical leaders of insignificant, almost insignificant countries will support and supply terrorism simply because they're trying to make a statement, we want to be valued on the world stage. Of course, they're doing wrong. Of course, it's unacceptable. Of course, it's inappropriate and inexcusable. But we need to realize what's taking place. We need to realize it in ourselves when we are feeling undervalued and we want to be valued. Jesus was looking at Simon Peter and said, you need to understand your value. When we don't feel like we are being valued, as I said, we tend to react. Divorces are quite often the result of one spouse or both spouses feeling undervalued in some way by the other spouse. Job changes are often the result of an employee feeling that he or she has been undervalued by an employer. And much of the present social and I believe racial and ethnic disorder of our time comes from some sense of being undervalued. Whether it's right or not, that sense is there. This is not a political statement about our times, no matter where our minds are running right now. But I do believe that the scriptures do have something to say about these feelings of value and what should be a valid response. 
When we feel like things are not going our way, when things have fallen in on us or accusations are being made, we, we look to our own defense and we might say, well, in my defense, wait a minute, do I, you know, it's kind of like those law shows. Do I need to get a lawyer for this? You're just talking to somebody, you're talking to the police, suddenly you're asking the question, do I need to get a lawyer for this? And we may not be lawyers by education and practice, but we probably watched enough television law shows to we know how things work, and so we want to ask the question. Because when in trouble or when we are accused, our first common response is that sense of defending ourselves. Even if it means finding someone else to accuse. Shift the blame. It's kind of like, you know, you talking to me? I wonder, you can't be talking to me. You can't be talking to me about this. Uh, whether we call it deflection or, or whatever we want to call it in this way, psychologically there are names that go along with this. It may be used in this effort. We're using this in an effort to shift blame or accusations to another person, to another place. It can't be my fault. I'm in the situation I'm in. It's got to be somebody else's fault that's there. But you know that, that kind of thing is as old as time because isn't that exactly what Adam did? And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? He said, it was the woman you gave me. And from the beginning of time, women have been leading us astray. Okay, so that's not exactly true. But Adam tried it. Adam tried it, didn't he? Is that an acceptable excuse? Did she bring him the fruit? Did she offer it to him? Did she probably tell him it was good to eat? And he said, well, okay. But he was the one who had to agree with it. Doesn't matter what the times were. It doesn't matter what she said. Doesn't, that doesn't matter. That really doesn't enter into it fully. He was responsible for his own actions. He's not alone. And some have just simply tried to get out of things. Think about Moses when he came to that burning bush, Exodus 3. He comes up to the bush. The Lord begins to speak to him, figures out what's going on, and Moses tried to deflect the responsibility. I'm not the one to go, Lord. I can't talk well. I'm not, they're not going to believe me. I'm a runaway from Egypt. Uh, why in the world would they believe anything that I have to tell them there? Moses tried to deflect it, tried to get out of it, tried to avoid it. He wanted to lay the responsibility at someplace else, but the Lord said, basically, it's you. It's on your shoulders, and he took it personally. But we're, we're that way. You catch a group of children doing something, probably something they shouldn't be doing. Anytime you see a group of children together doing something, you're probably doing something they shouldn't be doing. Oh, that's just an old parent's thinking, but <laughs> maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. But you catch them doing something they shouldn't be or have been told not to do, and they will generally deny involvement and point a finger at another child. I didn't do it. He did it. She did it. If you grew up with two sisters, you'd know that finger points always at the poor, innocent boy. But what we begin to learn within this, what we begin to learn within this is that when we divide ourselves, when we deflect from our own personal responsibility, when we segregate ourselves and make accusations and push things aside, we divide, we begin to fall. We're very quick to say it's not my fault, so it's not my job to fix it. It's somebody else's job. People, we inherited. We inherited our times. Every generation inherits its times. And you look at, especially as I think about the racial unrest today, we inherited some of these challenges from much earlier times.
For the slavery that was brought to this country, ultimately when emancipation came about, turned into segregation, that turned into racism, that brought movements of civil rights, and the laws were changed and brought a realization then finally to us after, how many, about 60 years? Brought a realization to us, you can change the laws, but it's tough to change the hearts. Changing laws is relatively easy. Changing rules is relatively easy. But changing the minds and the hearts of people is the challenge. We can cry and we can protest. We can say, oh, this is unfair and this is not right. But it's the hearts of people, individuals, you've got to change. No matter how many laws you've got on the books, no matter how many rules you've got in play, you've got to change the hearts of people. But before you think this is not an appropriate sermon material to consider, it is the individual heart that is the target of the gospel. And it is good news to the hearts of all people. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature every human being. We stand on equal footing in that regard. So I want us to very briefly for a few moments look back to the scriptures. I want to give you three scripture reflections. And taking it to the scriptures, I want to just point at three. We could have pointed at quite a number, but I want to point at three scripture reflections for a moment. One comes in Mark chapter one. And Jesus walking along by the seashore and And there are four fishermen that he has pointed to there. There are other fishermen there. There's Peter and Andrew and James and John working. They have a a commonality. They're connected in business together, it appears. But uh, he goes along and he sees his fishermen and he calls out to these fishermen. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And in each case... They left what they were doing, they dropped their nets or left it with the servants and they went off and they began to follow Jesus. Now, it was a personal call and it was a personal call, a personal responsibility. Now, they could have kept fishing, they could have kept right where they are, they could have kept living their lives as they were living them, but instead they went to follow Jesus to be changed. They went to be changed themselves. I don't know that they had a thought that they were going to change the world. They weren't thinking about changing the doctrine, they weren't thinking about changing the laws of their country, they weren't thinking about doing away with the Old Testament in any way. They just knew they were going to go and they were going to follow Jesus and ultimately their lives were changed because of that. Jesus said, I will make you to become. For the first reflection is these fishermen that were willing to go and thus willing to be changed themselves. And then some of these same ones in this process along the way, if we go down to Mark chapter 9, We find that they, going along, they get into a discussion. Here Jesus has got 12 close companions that travel with him, as well as many others. There's a whole entourage of people quite often with Jesus, and these 12 are very close to Jesus, and there grows up some discussion among them. Who's going to be the most important? Who's the greatest among us? Because even though they had spent time with Jesus, 
they still wanted their place. They still wanted to be seen. They still wanted to be recognized as people of, of great value and great importance. As I said, isn't that one of our basic drives? But they wanted to be honored and they wanted to be, report, or they wanted to be rewarded. But what does Jesus point them to? This is where it goes. In the desiring prestige, in the desiring of being elevated, to be desire of being recognized in this way, where does Jesus point them? Service. He points them to service. We didn't come to be served. We came to be served. You want to know who is the greatest among you? It's the one who's willing to serve. The one who's willing to stoop to the lowest. And the third reflection. In Matthew chapter 20. Late in the ministry of Jesus. Along come James and John. It seems like this is a little bit aside to the others. James and John and their mother, the wife of Zebedee, their mother come to Jesus and he's got a question. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, here's what I want you to do. Would you please put one of my sons on your left hand and one of my sons on your right because I want them to be seen. I want them to be seen. I want them to have that prestige. I want them to have that notice. I want them to be in the best places. They wanted places of importance in the eyes of others, not just to feel it in themselves, not just to know that they're the greatest as earlier, but to have that position and be noticed. They wanted the world stage to see who they were. And Jesus let them know as he asked them the question, are you ready to drink the cup I'm ready to, that I have to drink? Are you ready to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they said, oh, yes, Lord, we are. He said, well, the fact of the matter is you will. But to just be given a place like that is not mine to give you. I think we need to think about that a little bit. You can protest and you can say, I want that place, I want that position, I want to be noticed, I want to sit on, on the right hand. But it's not just something that's given away. It is something that you, you deal with in life and you come to that. It is about character. It is about service. It is about humility. Why was Jesus elevated? Read the, letter, the middle part of Philippians chapter 2. Read after verse 8 down through about verse 11 and said, God raised him up. And honored him that, every, that it is name, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess in heaven and earth and those under the earth. It was because of what he was willing to do, it was because of the service he was willing to render that God gave him that praise. It's not something just handed out. It's not just because you were there that day. It's not because you showed up in class and raised your hand. It is because you gave yourself to this. That's what we see in Jesus. And thus the history of people is a repeated story. The geography, the times, the names may change. But the storyline is the same in our time as it was then. And we need to remember that, that prophecy, that warning, if you will, in Romans 15. What does it say? For whatever things were written before, we're written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So where is I leading in all this? It's down to this. You make you matter.
You already matter to God. God already loves you, no doubt about it. God demonstrated his love for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's already a given thing. But you make you matter. And I think one of the best examples of this goes back to the Old Testament story of Joseph. And I believe he is an example for our times. And we don't have time to read through his story, but you go and read it. Pick up in Genesis 37 as we are introduced to Joseph, uh, Jacob's sons, and Joseph being this younger son that is loved. So there you go to chapter 37, read through the end of the book of Genesis, and you find that great story. But it is a story of negative situations for Joseph, continually finding himself in negative or hard situations. He was hated by his brothers because of his privilege. He was sold to slave traders who happened to come by. He lived as a slave and a servant in Egypt. And he was even falsely accused and imprisoned because of those false accusations. And even after doing good deeds, he was still forgotten and left in prison. Yet, to shorten the story down, in every case, in every case, he was not embittered, he was not untracked, but he always strove for excellence within himself. What a great story. And when he found himself empowered, when he found himself empowered, when he could have brought retribution hard, he forgave others and trusted the will of God to take its place. It may be a little bit similar. In a way, when we later find Moses and the Israelites by the Red Sea. For remember what God told Moses. When the people were complaining to him about their troublesome situation between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army and they thought they were there to die. Remember what the Lord said to Moses? Exodus 14 and verse 15. Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Make you matter. We can sit around on our hands and gripe about our situations and complain about everything that's been wrong in our lives and every bad deed that's been done from the beginning of time to the present. And all we'll do is make ourselves tired and complaining. So I lay to you some challenges very quickly. Take these three challenges because I think it kind of summarizes it for us to live in our times and for I believe the needs of our times it's as simple as this yes the implications are difficult number one live a life of value and I believe in the end people will value you isn't that exactly what the Lord is teaching secondly make character your everyday goal Live that life of character, no matter what else is going on, no matter what everyone around you is doing, live that life of character. Thirdly, apply the golden rule. 
what so that you would, that men would do to you, do also to them? Pretty simple, isn't it? How would you want to be treated? Treat others that way. These are the challenges. And can you see that if we just simplified things in such a way in our times and whatever situation we're finding ourselves, we're still going to disagree about some things. But if we take these challenges, if we take these things and these pictures and we draw it down and we take responsibility for ourselves and we make ourselves valued by the way we live our lives, everyone's life is better. I believe, friends, the answer is simple. But I also understand that the application takes time and hard work because we're talking about the changing of hearts. I don't know whether our times are that different. I've been quick to say, and some of you have too, I never thought I'd see a time like this. But there's always been challenges, there have always been turmoils, there have always been racial differences, there have always been struggles of societies, they've always been there. And I believe that always the answer has come back to exactly what we're talking about. You take responsibility for you and apply the golden rule. And life for everyone will be that much better. The message of the gospel is good news. That Jesus came and surrendered his life for us is good news. That we have life and hope eternal is good news. That we have the opportunity to be a blessing to everyone around us is good news. Perhaps there's someone who needs to obey the gospel this morning. If it's you, let us encourage you. The opportunity is here. We want you to have your life right with God, whatever might be amiss. If you need the prayers of the church, if you need to be baptized into Christ this day, if there's some other need you have, the opportunity is there. And let's remember how blessed we are because God loves to give to us these things. If there's someone who needs to come this morning, won't you do so as we stand together and as we sing the song?